one of the interviews about how um, our heart, our mind becomes transformed. It's, it's interesting how these themes begin in retreats from Deborah's talk last Saturday about gathering data and just every moment of mindfulness, however simple it seems, but when there's a non-conceptual mind knowing experience or dhamma the way that it is, then that direct experiencing, it begins to uproot or transform the view in the mind. And we're just gathering more and more data points, more experiences of seeing things as they are. And gradually, sometimes imperceptibly, or most of the time maybe imperceptibly, there's a transformation, an uprooting of what in Buddhism we call wrong view or taking things personally, which is then replaced with you know, right view, which is the absence of wrong view. Instead of thinking of right view as something to strive for, right view is really the uprooting of wrong view, uprooting of the incorrect in the sense that it arises out of misperception, the incorrect perception or sense of separation or self. There's a permanent something behind. So in terms of taking the practice home, one of the things that's useful is just to have a sense of all the seeds that have been planted in the practice we've done these last nine days. And in a way, there's nothing that can be done to stop that practice from having its effect. So instead of like, how can I make this work that I've done have its effect for me when I go back home, I think it may be more useful to look at the work we've done, the practice we've done, and to consider how it's impossible for the work we've done not to have the effect it's meant to have. And this is how nature is. It's like when something has been done, it has an effect. When we cultivate rage for two decades, it has its effect on the mind. And it's too late to say, I wish I hadn't done that. Because it's it's like part of the mind stream now, part of the conditioned mind stream now. In the same way that every moment of mindfulness becomes part of the mind stream. And the insights that arise out of those moments of mindfulness, it becomes part of the mind stream. Quite literally, the mind is a different place, a different sort of, it has a different trajectory because of the work we do. So a lot of things change, you know, in the transition from being on a nine-day retreat, and then tomorrow there'll be a little talking, ending with the lunch. Some of you will be staying for the lunch and then out into the world. Some of you flying, some of you driving, some of you local, living nearby. But in any case, going back out there, and there will be a lot of change, you know, from the relative protection and seclusion of the retreat experience to the busyness of our lives. It's so amazing how when we're back in relationship with like the people we live with or the person we live with or the people we hang out with, It's amazing how quickly the old tendencies re-arise because who we are isn't a separate or distinct entity. We really are the person that arises conditioned by the place, the experience we're in, in that moment. That's also part of this teaching and not self. Instead of there's a Mark who shows up in all these different places in my life, it's more the Mark that shows up comes out of the condition that particular circumstance. So you'll start seeing this. You were, the experience of self or the experience of this mind and body was one thing here on retreat because it arose with these supporting conditions. And now when we're on the freeway with traffic or back with our partners or our pets or whatever, you know, we'll see those predictable patterns arising, but we can see it as a rising of nature and not feel like, oh, we lost something, but instead it's more like, well, of course, 
when there are these supporting conditions, this is how the sense of self, the experience of mind and body presents itself. So we just go right back to the practice. Of course, this is how it is. And then in these other circumstances, then there will be a different display or projection or manifestation of self, of the way it is for the body and mind. And we don't have to take any of that personally. It can just be this wise, of course. And the thing that lingers isn't this sort of tranquil or wise, radiant being. (laughs) I mean, I hate to admit this, but I, I remember thinking like, one of the objectives of, you know, meditating retreat practice is to have, you know, a glow, you know, like sparkly eyes and serene continence and, you know, kind of to fit the part. <laughs> so we have all kinds of ideas and they generally get blown out of the water <laughs> when we go home and our buttons get pushed. But, but there is something that happens that can't be stopped. And uh, one teacher, it's like you're putting money in the bank. It, you know, once the money's there, it has its effect. It, it accumulates. And it's the same with these little moments, big, big and little moments of mindfulness that we've had. And in a way, the proximate cause for more mindfulness are the moments of mindfulness. So it builds, the, the, the energy builds. So don't, don't feel too much like uh, trying to maintain any of the outward expressions of having been on retreat, because that will be craving. And then the frustration you experience by trying to hang on to these things will be aversion. <laughs> and then giving up, as if you can give up, is delusion. <laughs> Somebody once said, it's like a porcupine getting caught going down a drain pipe there's no going back. (laughs) Once we have a sense of the practice, (laughs) it's like, it's better to fit. I think it was Trungpa Rinpoche, this controversial Tibetan teacher. Some of you have heard of him, Pema Children's uh, main teacher. And uh, he was controversial in a number of ways, but he he had some real wisdom too, of course. And one of the things that he, suppo- he supposedly said was, uh, better not to begin the practice, but if you begin, better to end it. Because <laughs> <laughs> once we have a sense of how transforming it is to be awake to a moment's experience, it only makes sense to continue that, to sort of develop more of that continuity of mindfulness. And it's difficult, as I'm sure you've all experienced, We don't always like what we see as we wake up. So how do we continue the practice? I was having a discussion with somebody uh, in one of the interviews, maybe yesterday or the day before, and he or she said, uh, the most important thing is remembering the most important thing. I think that was something she heard from one of her teachers. The most important thing is remembering the most important thing. That's a really good instruction about taking the practice home. The most important thing is remembering the most important thing. And some of you probably heard Thich Nhat Hanh's similar teaching which he, where he said, uh, we only have one real enemy, which is forgetfulness, or there's only one enemy, forgetfulness. So how do we um, avoid this one real enemy, forgetfulness, as we go home? And there are a lot of ways. So, but. It will be different for each of us, but one way or another, you know, being that porcupine going down the drain pipe, one way or another, we have to remember going back doesn't make sense, standing still doesn't make sense, just going forward, remembering. That's the going forward, just remembering there is a practice, there is a training, it's simple. It's not easy to remember because it's, in a sense, countercultural. So much of the cultural momentum is towards distraction, you know, filling up the space of our mind with things that appear to be important, relevant, like the next cat video. <laughs> Just in a way, that's liberation, isn't it? Nine days without any of those YouTube videos, <laughs> hopefully. 
So um, how to remember the practice, how to take it home. This is where little rituals come in. Like, you know, we've mentioned something as simple as a daily sitting practice or the refuges and precepts as a more formal part or symbols that you might have in your home on an altar or just someplace that serves as a reminder. Dharma friends, people who are as interested, sincere in the practice as you are, that are sort of living, moving symbols of your deeper aspiration in your life. They help you remember. And when you're becoming a little, thinking you can back up or something like that, or that you can forget the practice, you know, they serve as a reminder. Punctuating the year with retreat practice or other um, Dharma activities, you know, local Dharma centers, or creating your own little sitting group if there aren't any nearby centers. But one way or another, we have to uh, find different ways of remembering the practice. Another thing is just uh, holding on, uh, having available little teachings that are easy to recall to bring to mind, and then planting them around. on the computer screen or in your pocket, write a, write a word and put it in your pocket on a piece of paper. In one of the suttas, the Buddha talks about this very explicitly, You know how initially we have to have enough faith to go see a teacher or get the teachings. And then we have to have enough sense of the value to memorize what we've heard so that it's like with us. And then we have to have enough sense to regurgitate it and think about what we've memorized. We have to contemplate it. And part of that contemplation process is like bringing up, like a cow, what do they do? They regurgitate or, what do they call it? Chew their cud, but they, anyway, they cough it up and they chew their cud. It's like we bring up the teaching and we chew on it, given the experience we're having in the moment. Like, how does, it, how does it illuminate? How does it clarify? How is it practical, useful in this lived experience? So always testing the teachings, because in the Dharma, in the Buddhist teachings, they are a pointer to the here and now. So when we talk about impermanence, it's not about theoretical impermanence. It's about drawing the heart, mindfulness, closer to the way that it is. The teaching of impermanence, for example, allows us to be closer because the teaching, the conceptual map, is in line, presumably, with the way it is. That's for us to check out. Is it in line? Does it help the mind be closer? So what teaching are you going what teaching have you already memorized, already resonates with you? You have enough faith in that particular teaching that you want to memorize it. Like Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. Having heard this teaching, you've heard all the teachings. Having understood this teaching, you've understood all the teachings. Having realized this teaching, you've realized the teachings. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. So this is a statement of the Buddhas. So you could just remember that. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. Not as an absolute truth, but as a reflection. Like, there's a resonant, like when we hear that, there's a resonant, like a provocative resonance for us. Or similar, in a similar vein, the Buddha said, the supreme liberation has been realized by the Tathagata, which is what he, the word he used to refer to himself. Namely, liberation through non-clinging. So just even the word non-clinging, non-grasping, non-attachment, just having that word around. Or maybe for you, the word mindfulness opening, or it's already here. You see, it could be a line from a poem, a line from a Dharma teacher, a line from the Buddha. But one way or another, we, we can use concept, words, to support our actual practice of opening to the way that it is. Words, thinking is, is not always in the way of practice. It can be a great support. I mean, Clearly, there have been a lot of words, even on a silent meditation retreat. Hopefully, some of them have been really useful. So we're not against words. So you might even think now, uh, as I'm talking for, on this particular point, like, 
what word or phrase might be useful for you to begin with. And then you'll just naturally come across teachings and then pick them up, write it down, memorize it. First, check it out. Make sure that it resonates with your actual experience, ties in with what your actual experience has already shown you is true directly in your experience, and then take it up, and it becomes your own. You become independent with that teaching, not just some platitude that you can repeat at cocktail parties, but it's like a sacred truth. And you actually, this is actually a smaller but important point about where you bring up these important truths, not at cocktail parties. (laughs) Because even if you've been, some of you have been practicing for quite a while, and even those people, those of you who've been practicing for a while, when you bring things up in the wrong context, you might get blank stares or just a response from the people you're around that can cause you doubt. So you want to be careful. This is a, this is a subtle, and I, don't know, I know some of you may not like the word sacred, but sacred activity we're involved in. And you just want to be thoughtful about where you share this part of your life. You don't need to be afraid or tight about this. You just want to be skillful about where you bring this up because it matters. And you want to bring it up in a context where even if people don't understand the practice, you have a sense that they trust you and what you're doing enough that what you'll get back from them, even if they don't understand it, is support because they see something good is unfolding in your life. And they just want you to continue doing what you're doing. And of course, bringing it up in a context where there are other people who practice can be quite useful, even more useful because they'll be inspired and they'll mirror back the benefits of the practice that you're experiencing and you're sharing. And they'll normalize the frustrations you're experiencing in your practice because if they're a practitioner, they're gonna be having those same frustrations at times. So in that context, it can be quite useful. So first thing, taking the home practice, taking the practice home rather, is finding a way to keep the teaching in mind, not to become forgetful, so that it's really with you all day long. Just like uh, Carlos Castaneda, a well-known author, you know, said, keep death over your left shoulder, I think, something like that. So whenever you think, you know, whenever you get superficial, you can check. You know, you got death right here. That sort of sobers us up. So in the same way, we want to keep the the deepest aspiration, this aspiration for liberation, the freedom from grasping, the heart that grasps, the heart that gets tight, the heart that falls into states of fear and a sense of lack, sense of separation, that freedom from that is possible for this human being, for this heart. You want to keep that close at hand and whatever sense of the path as we currently understand it like the path of non-clinging, or for some of you will be the path of compassion. I mean, that word compassion will represent the path. So it's really going to be about what's uh, real in your practice that you have faith in, that you've seen works, and then to be able to recall it so you can bring it up. Which brings me to the second way to take it home. And you can do this right now as I'm talking, but you might choose one thing that happens regularly, like at least once a week that's challenging for you, but probably not the most challenging part of your life. So maybe there's somebody who irritates you at work, but not overwhelmingly difficult person. Or maybe you really uh, don't like the whole world of having to buy food and cook it, or you don't like traffic, or you don't like this, or you don't like that but you choose one difficult place in your life and you turn it into practice. And you have to resolve in your mind now, and then it would be good if you did it every morning when you wake up, you remember, this is my practice. So when this arises, if it does today, it's as if a little mindfulness bell goes off and you remember, okay, this is practice. This isn't a difficult part of my life. This is a teacher. And remember, as a teacher, as a mindfulness teacher, it's not about like, okay, get that right strategy. 
It's about being awake. And if we take up a wrong strategy, then we're awake to that. We're mindful of that. If we take up an effective strategy in that particular interaction, then we're awake to that. We see how that is. So it's not about getting nervous and and trying to figure out how to be skillful. I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't reflect about how to be skillful in these situations that you're thinking of. But it's more about investing in being present. And you know, one of the easy ways as you're hearing that mindfulness bell and you have a few seconds before you enter that meeting that's so difficult for you or get into the traffic that's so challenging for your mind or go visit your parents that brings up a lot for you or whatever it might be. The mindfulness bell goes off. You have a few seconds to drop into the experience of the body. So instead of in your mind thinking about how to be skillful, it's too late because it's about to arise. So you drop into the body and you take the mode of a learner. You know, that's what mindfulness is. We're observing the mind and body. And I'll learn whether or not the um, response that arises in the mind is skillful or not. Because if it's unskillful, I'll see cause and effect how being greedy leads to problems or being aversive leads to problems or being controlling leads to problems or being defensive leads to problems or being you know, in denial leads to problems. So mindfulness will reveal what works and what doesn't work. <coughs> so does everybody have a particular difficult, challenging place? You know, think of it now. And then right now, make the resolve that every morning you remember it. Because otherwise, the mindfulness spell won't go off. It'll be, you won't remember it until afterwards. You go, oh yeah, I was going to turn that into a teacher in my life. But I totally wasn't there. I just was in my more reactive habitual response in that situation. So if you set the intention every day, and then this thing happens, you know, not maybe not every day, but most days or some days a week, then you really will have this experience that a few seconds before it begins, like a little bell, your mind will just like, oh yeah, I've made this resolve to be present, to, be, to practice with mindfulness as I enter and to keep coming back to mindfulness. The mind really responds this way. One of the yogi tricks that long-time yogis do on retreat is they they see if they can get away from using the alarm clock and they say, before they go to bed, they set the resolve, okay, it seems like this will be a good time to wake up. And it's amazing how the mind responds to these resolves. You can try that. I mean, don't, don't, don't do that obsessively. But the mind is an amazing instrument. So if you set the resolve, to remember that this difficult part of your life can be a powerful teacher for you. It will. You'll remember. And then you'll be somewhat more mindful, if not a lot more mindful, for part of that time. Of course, you're going to get sucked in, of course, but there'll be more moments of mindfulness, more moments of learning, and that whole part of your life will get transformed just because of those moments of mindfulness that intersperse that period. So now everyone should have a spot or a place, right? Okay. And John's recording the talk. <laughs> Another important part of uh, taking the practice home in that the, this environment really supports, but we'll lose it once we get home. IMS is such a tranquil place. Just the schedule, even though I'm sure it pushed our buttons at times, challenging at times. But generally speaking, it's a really tranquil situation we've been in. It's a peaceful place. Nobody's rushing around. The operation is really smooth, so you don't see a lot of the staff acting out or being frustrated. People kind of being harsh with each other. It's like we've been free from a lot of the agitating things in life now for a while. Now, what we can do once we go back to daily life is we can cultivate this value for relaxation. Now, it's different than mindfulness, but it's, it's very supportive of mindfulness. It's relatively easy to be mindful when we're feeling tranquil. It's relatively challenging to be mindful when we're agitated. I think, you know, if I were president or 
if I were Congress, <laughs> you know, there would be laws that starting in preschool, a major part of the curriculum is teaching children, young children, teenagers, young adults, middle-aged adults, older adults, how to relax until people become really competent at relaxing. Because relaxation, like so many other things, it's just a skill. But it's a skill we don't value culturally. I mean, we all kind of know it's important, but how many times in your life have you formally practiced relaxing, systematically practiced relaxing? Not too many times. I mean, some of us have because we've gotten sick, you know, or stressed out, and then we take a course or some take up yoga or some activity with the idea of relaxing. But everybody has enough time. I mean, everybody here probably has five to ten minutes a day to practice relaxing. I, take a, I do savasana once or twice a day at least, almost every single day, and usually more than once. I'll lie down on my back. Savasana is the corpse pose. Some of you know it from yoga. Or you could just do, use your right side, lie on your right side. You don't want to do it too long because you tend to fall asleep. But, you know, and it's okay to fall asleep, but you don't want to, there's a, just a part of the cycle is relaxing, 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 going unconscious, and the mind will drop into deep sleep for a moment, and then it generally bounces out of deep sleep, and then you want to get up on that rebound. You don't want to be in that sort of trance, dreamlike state for a while. Because that actually can be somewhat stressful in the middle of the day. But it's really nice, this is what generally is meant by a power nap, is to go and touch bottom, where the mind in deep sleep drops most of the sort of conceptual activity, and we feel refreshed. And you get really good at it if you practice it. Now, there's other ways, like if if it doesn't work for you to lie down in the middle of the day, you just, like when you get in your car, you take 30 seconds before you start it. Our cars are pretty comfortable places these days. You just sit there and you relax. Don't, don't neurotically try to practice mindfulness. <laughs> Got to be a good yogi. I mean, it's okay to be mindful. Mindfulness is one of the most skillful ways to relax because mindfulness will reveal how the mind is agitating itself, right? It will reveal like how it's worrying and, oh, it's just worry. And that's such a skillful means for the release of the identification with the worry. But don't try to do something. Relaxation on this level that I'm talking about is just noticing that this is the tent when the body is told it doesn't have anything to do, it goes from this to this. There's like a natural dropping of physical tension. And then the mind will mirror that. The mental tension will mirror the physical release. So that's the third thing. So taking the practice home means we have to remember it. Ongoing study, participation in Dharma groups, daily sitting, regular retreat practice, having a little pithy phrase, having reminders around remembering the practice. Choosing a difficult part of your life that you can uh, turn into practice every day. Set the resolve so you will actually remember with a few seconds warning so that you can settle into the moment, into a, some stream of mindful awareness as you're entering that experience, that difficult experience. Third thing is to practice relaxing. Fourth thing, and you can do this now, Choose some ordinary, non-charged activity, like brushing your teeth, or Kamala talks sometimes in her Dharma talks about when she was raising her children, young children, as a single mother, using the hallway that was, her teacher actually gave her this idea of Manindaji, because there wasn't too much she had to do in this hallway, and the kids weren't bothering her generally in the hallway. So she could just, whenever she entered the hallway, she remembered just to be walking. And so there's things in our lives that don't take a lot of uh, mental activity so we can, they're just conducive for mindfulness practice. 
turning on and off light switches. But just choose one thing right now. And that's okay, whatever it is, however simple it is. Something you do several times a day would be ideal. And resolve that I'm just going to practice being there when I'm there, 100%. That's all it is. It's just You might slow it down just a little, not in any weird way, just to sort of make it stand out more as a, an experience. Just like here on, on retreat, we slow down a little bit because it just makes it easier when we're moving about the meditation center the retreat center, it just is like a support for being mindful because we're at a different pace. If we're at our pace we're normally at when we're out in the world, we'll be normally distracted. So if we shift the pace a little bit, it's just a little bit more easy to be mindful. So some place, I've worked with brushing my teeth, and I just noticed how much aversion there was, like just wanting to get through it, impatience. And it's really been transformed over the years. Using the toilet I've used. And the thing is, as you get really good at one, then it will just become habit, good habit, and then choose another neutral. Same with the difficult place. Once you've really mastered that particular difficult place and you have a lot of wisdom, a lot of mindfulness in it, then just choose another one. You won't be able to forget that that's your practice. Right? It just becomes part of the mind to remember to practice in that situation. It may take months, so don't be in a hurry to take on another one. Give it as much time as you think you need. Same with the neutral one. So now we have four things. And the last is just infusing the practice with love, with metta or compassion and a sense of humor. (laughs) This is where Dharma friendship is really important. One of the great things about spiritual community, what we sometimes in this tradition call sangha, although sangha has a more technical meaning of the monastic sangha or those people who have deeply realized the teachings of the Buddha, generally we refer to sangha as spiritual community. And as I mentioned earlier, like in terms of remembering the practice, sangha or community really helps uh, support the practice, especially during the difficult times. And it really, the community, the Sangha, is really what helps us remember the beautiful qualities of heart. This is another, in a way, another definition of Sangha, or the beautiful qualities of heart that arise when the Buddha knows Sangha. I think I mentioned this on Friday night, last week, uh, the first night of the retreat. When the awakened or open, mindful, quality of the heart knows the way things are, then beautiful qualities arise. So like in this Sangha, this community of practitioners that we've been part of for the last nine days, in any moment of the last nine days, there have been a lot of beautiful qualities being expressed. In any moment in the hall, you know, any number of people are being serene, not everybody, but somebody at least, probably many, many are quite serene Some people's hearts are full of compassion. Some people's minds have that clear, ringing wisdom, seeing things as they are. So there, in any moment, just vibrationally, there's so many of these beautiful qualities of Sangha that are uh, manifesting. So it's really nice to be in community for that reason. We're, We're reminded of the fruits of the practice when we're in a good community. So if you don't have one near you, create one near you, because that's what you have to do. Just start a sitting group, start around a book or something like that. Of course, there are many other things that I could mention about taking the practice home. We learn a lot from our mistakes, trying too hard, not, not putting enough effort in the practice. I'll just end with this teaching the Buddha gave, it's a little bit mysterious, one of these more mysterious teachings, but I think it's useful. I think he was teaching a celestial being, as the stories go at least, late at night, the Buddha would be up practicing. It's interesting that as a fully awakened being, he continued to practice, doing his walking practice, his mindfulness of breathing practice, his other practices. What else are you gonna do, right? You teach until there's nobody around to teach, and then you practice being mindful. 
But anyway, often it's, it's said that the celestial beings would come in the middle of the night and their, the beauty of the angelic beings would illuminate the sky, the night sky. Anyway, one night a celestial being came down and asked the Buddha for some teachings. And I think this, the person, the celestial beings question was something, how did you cross over the flood? Because right? that's often, that's the typical natural disaster where the Buddha grew up were these huge floods that would just sweep away villages in the Ganges floodplain. So when you wanted to think of something bad, it was a flood. So that's, they, the Buddha used the image of a flood in terms of being swept away by our own negative habits of greed and aversion and confusion. So the celestial being asked, well, how did you cross over that flood? All that conditioning, those tendencies to be greedy, aversive, deluded, identified with those and the Buddha gave this sort of strange answer. He said, by not moving forward, by not standing still, I crossed over. And the celestial being wasn't quite satisfied with that answer. <laughs> and then asked, well, so how, how did that work? Like, how did you not push forward or stand still? And the Buddha gave another sort of little confusing answer. He said, he didn't tell him how, he just said, when I pushed forward, you know, when I personally tried to cross the stream, I got swept about, I got swept away. And when I stood still, like, I can't do this, this is too confusing, I give up, I sank. So by not pushing forward and by not standing still, I crossed over. And so in taking the practice home, we want to be on the lookout for, like, okay, now I'm going to really do it. Yeah, that's the pushing forward. Like, I personally am going to make this happen. Or giving up, thinking it's too much. I started too late. How many people have thought, especially when, you know, there's so many young people who seem really astute, have good Dharma instincts on this retreat. And then if you're one of the people not so young, you think, God, why didn't I start when I was in my 20s? Well, we didn't, (laughs) or we just started when we started. And if we have a vast view of it, just open our mind to like, we have as much time as we need. This is the time to practice. We don't need to be greedy about the practice, and we don't need to be sort of deluded thinking, oh, it's just going to happen on its own, by not pushing forward, not standing still. And the way I hold this sort of strange response to this, this being's question It's like just being interested. Being interested in the way it is is not a way of pushing forward, but it's not not doing anything either, is it? So mindfulness, wise mindfulness, wisdom mindfulness, is that way to not push forward in life and to not give up. And it's just about being interested. So I'll leave it here. We have a little time. We'll take a break before Kamala comes in at 4 o'clock, but we have about 10 minutes. If there are any questions. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure IMS has some good resources on their website. And commongroundmeditation.org, the, my center or the center where I teach in Minneapolis, we have a resource page. So those would be good places to, to look. Um, and then uh, Roberta will be talking to you a little later this afternoon, the uh, manager of the retreat. And she'll open up the welcome center that some of you saw when you registered. And that will have some of the books from the IMS teachers. And you know people like Joseph, Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and Jack Kornfield and many others of our, the senior teachers in this lineage have wonderful books. And you'll see them, and you can either purchase them or just jot them down and then get them at the local library. A lot of them are popular enough. They've made them into the libraries around. Did everybody hear that? So she was just asking for some books. Yeah. Are there a couple of 
couple of resources that you or Kama or Deborah know about that are focused more as practice manuals, not strategies, but practice manuals where they discuss that more than uh, Dharma, Sutra, um, sort of uh, theory. And uh, do you have a couple, or could you indicate a couple of books that are more focused in that direction? I think what might she's asking about uh, resources that uh, direct people in a more experiential way. And uh, you know what I would do? There's a great resource, dharmacy.org. Some of you might know this already. But all the people who teach at um, IMS here in Massachusetts and Spirit Rock in California, all of those teachers, most of their dharma talks and their guided meditations are recorded, like John is doing here for us. And uh, they stay there. And so... What I, I think the best resource for that more experiential work is just, uh, and just follow your nose, uh, experimenting with different guided meditations from different teachers. There's a lot of value in hearing the Dhamma, the teachings, the instructions from different points of view. Because remember, we're attempting to become independent in the practice, not dependent. But it can be quite useful to hear how different people point to this experience we call mindfulness. The word mindfulness is so simplistic. So like Kamala, I I told her after her little question and answer in that response, it was a little bit of what we call a a lion's roar because it was just so useful, that little bit. And John, I think, recorded it. So that will be probably on Dharma Seed. You just search by teacher and uh, those things will be up there. But there are many, many good resources at dharmaseed.org. And some of the IMS people run and have organized and maintain that. So it's really a great resource. Yes? Uh, I don't think it was recorded. I guess we could record it. But I think there are a lot of good recordings of the refuges and precepts. I'm assuming on the Dharma Seed website, but certainly at some of the monastic websites, like this will be a hard word to remember, but abayagiri.org. It's a, a Fearless Mountain is the translation. If you Googled Fearless Mountain Monastery, you'll probably get abayagiri.org. It's in the Ajahn Chah tradition, which has had a strong influence here at IMS as well. And uh, they have a lot of chanting there. Um, that you can listen to. But I'm guessing there's some chanting also has been recorded at the Dharma Seed website. And there's a search function at the Dharma Seed. You could just put in chanting and you'll probably get all the different chants that have been recorded over the years. Yes. Uh, it depends on the personality. Some people, just uh, how your mind works, they're able to sort of have a sense of what they're doing. And then everything they hear, even if it's from a, y- using language differently, different metaphors, um, they're able to sort of take the information that's useful and uh, integrate it with what they already understand directly from their experience. Other people, it really throws them for a loop. So it really depends on the person whether initially you want to stay pretty much grounded in one tradition. In the West, it's hard not to be exposed to different traditions. So we're going to get a little of that messiness as Westerners because there's just so much good dharma from so many different lineages that's just part of the air we breathe in the sort of Western culture these days. But generally, you want to be a little bit careful and just careful in the sense of observing its effect on the mind. Do you leave with more confusion or is your practice clarified by going to different places? And just because you're kind of sticking with one thing for a while doesn't mean down the road that it may not be quite useful to go to a different talk. But generally, most people settle into one 
main practice. And then as they get sort of really clear, they can really benefit from hearing, but that doesn't necessarily change their one main practice because they're using the information, the instructions, and they're integrating it with their one main practice or their main sort of way of of working with the teachings. So this is coming out of the Theravada tradition, which is the Buddhist lineage. It's the more uh, classical lineage in the sense that it's based on the Pali Canon, which are the teachings of the historic Buddha. And it's conservative in the sense of they don't, they just keep going back to those teachings for the most part of the historic Buddha. And then other lineages like the Mahayana and the Vajrayana, there have been other, some of them really beautiful, fantastic teachings that have come up over the centuries later. And in those traditions, they might even say that's from the Buddha. But in terms of sort of academic study, it's very clear that these teachings came up centuries, some of them later than the time of the historic Buddha. But that doesn't mean they're not good teachings. It just means they're, and things evolved, you know. And so Theravada, when it came to the West, uh, in some circles at least, it started getting called Vipassana or insight meditation. So like Kamagam Meditation Center, where I teach, is a Vipassana meditation center or an insight meditation center. IMS, Insight Meditation Society, right? So it's like... uh, some people who've been here for years may not know this comes from the Theravada. It's the continuation of the Theravada Buddhism, but it is. It's the continuation of Theravada Buddhism here in the States. And that's the kind of Buddhism you'd find in Thailand and Burma, Sri Lanka, and to some degree in places like Laos and Cambodia. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, but that's in the general Theravada lineage, yeah. Yeah. Would you recommend sticking only with Vipassana or trying also concentration? Again, it depends on your personality and the, and the particular talents of the mind and how much time you have and what kind of teachers are accessible to you and retreats are accessible to you. For, but for people who are longtime practitioners and have some time on their hand, sure, why not do a nine-day concentration retreat or a six week concentration retreat or for a period of time do a concentration retreat and then for a period of time practice that way at home but generally speaking if you don't know what to practice I'd recommend you just do Vipassana but once you have your feet wet with the practice then you you're just like the same way people might pick up loving kindness practice as their main practice for a period of time or even do a couple just loving kindness retreats same thing with concentration. And of course, metta as a meditation practice is really a concentration practice. And it's used for the deeper states of absorption, loving kindnesses often. Yeah, in the back. Well, sure. I mean, if you get good at concentration practice, it's in a sense the deepest kind of relaxation because the mind becomes very secluded from sense experience. And there's really deep states of ease that come up. But I'm talking about it in a very practical way, you know, that you can get some advantage from it, just five or ten minutes of giving yourself to it. Maybe just one more, and then we should probably take a break. Mm-hmm. What book? Do you know what book you're talking about? Oh, you're thinking about Larry Rosenberg. Yeah, who's a, who's a longtime teacher at IMS, one of the senior teachers here. Well, in the Theravada tradition, there are many skillful means. And even within like Burmese Vipassana practice, there are many different ways it's taught. So there's <laughs> somebody from Burma is laughing because they know it's like every monastery, every sayadaw, has their own particular approach. And so this is the, this is the place to be careful about because it's easy to get confused, always wondering, was well, that better? You know, the grass is greener over there or here. And concentration practice, metta practice, open attention practice, rising and falling of the abdomen practice, 
feeling the breath at the nostril, mental noting, not mental noting, don't do mental noting. <laughs> focus the attention, don't focus the attention. I mean, just, yeah, yeah. It is. And Larry did write a, a nice book about Anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing. And uh, so it's important to, to find a practice that works, stick with it. When you just naturally bump up against other practices, if it feels like for whatever reason you're drawn to it, then consider it carefully, but don't be afraid to take up another practice. You know, ultimately we're going to have several different skillful means that we can draw on. And even in this practice, we're using Anapanasati. Most people probably, at least in part during this nine-day retreat, use mindfulness of breathing. So it's just a question of how significant a place it has in our repertoire of technique or skillful means. That's really what it's about. Yeah, so mindfulness of breathing does not contradict Vipassana practice. And even if you're relatively uh, continuous with your mindfulness of breathing, you can do a lot of Vipassana just in knowing the in-breath, knowing the out-breath, knowing what's in the way of knowing the in-breath and knowing the out-breath, having insight into how the mind is transformed through the continuity of attention to the breath. There's so much to so much of Dhamma, the way it is, that is revealed through mindfulness of breathing too. So some people who did a great job on the retreat were primarily with their breath. And some people who did a great job on the retreat were primarily not with their breath. So there's many ways to do the Vipassana practice. Vipassana means opening to the way that it is. And any object, any experience will do. Because every object that can be known is an expression of Dhamma, the way it is. So we don't need a particular object. But we want to be careful about getting confused about the different techniques because it can set our minds spinning. Is somebody ringing the bell, the callback bell? So John, let's do it a little bit later. It's five to four. Why don't we uh, do a a 15 minute break? So maybe start ringing it at uh, five after four. Everybody will be back at 10 after 4. Kamala will give a talk on Donna, and then Roberta will give a talk about closing. Thanks, everyone, for listening.